The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Jordan. Well, yeah, Jonah chapter 4, if you got a Bible, that's what we're dealing with tonight. Uh, so this should be fun on Labor Day weekend. Um, man, really good, like I said, to, to be with you guys. Um, my name's Tim. That's all this I'm supposed to say. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into Jonah 4 together as we kind of wrap up our series on the world's worst prophet and the incredible mercy of our God. Let, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Jonah. God, thank you that once again we have an opportunity to take a few minutes to learn from his mistakes and his rebellion, and his stupidity. God, and I pray that as we look at Jonah, that you would help us look at ourselves. And would you give us eyes to see your heart for us and how our hearts don't align. How you're calling us back to your mercy and your grace and your kindness. Lord, we love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it has become a little bit of a Friday morning tradition in the Olson household to have waffles with dad. So as a pastor, my work week is uh, Sunday to Thursday. And so Fridays are our family Sabbath, a day where we rest and we pause and we cease from work to enjoy God and to enjoy each other. And so one of our traditions is that I spend extended time with our two daughters and Lindsay. My wife gets to kind of go away for a little bit and to a coffee shop or a park and just kind of breathe and be human and really read and pray and spend time with the Lord and drink coffee while it's still hot, which is very hard to do uh, if you're a parent of two kids under really any age. Uh, and so uh, one of the other things you need to know uh, is that uh, most toddlers, but mine in particular, who is very type A, loves things a particular way. 
So if you uh, accidentally, hypothetically, put the milk cup in the wrong spot on the table, or if you start her pant legs on the right leg first instead of the left leg first, or a whole host of things, uh, she doesn't really take it that well. And you would think if you do something wrong in my child's world that it would be like, hey, excuse me, father, uh, the milk cup actually goes here instead of there. Uh, but you put it wrong. It's okay. I forgive you. I know you love me. Let's just talk about it and let's reconcile. No big deal. Except that's not what happens, because in the Olsen household, when you do something against my type A toddler's way of doing things, then it tends to lead into some amount of toddler meltdown. Well, a few weeks ago, I made a parenting mistake. It was my wife's birthday, and it coincided with waffles with dad. And so I thought, I'm going to be really, really nice. And here's what I'm going to do to win husband of the year points. There are a few things that Lindsay loves more in this world than cake for breakfast. She just loves it. And so I said, hey, we have this Publix chocolate peanut butter cake, the best chocolate peanut butter cake there is in the world. And so I'm going to do the awesome pro husband dad thing. We're going to cut a little piece off. We're going to put a little candle in it. We're going to take it to her in bed. Harper's going to sing happy birthday. It's going to be so sweet and wonderful. And then she gets to eat cake at 7 a.m. in the morning in peace. What a great, wonderful start to her birthday. So we did that. I cut a piece off. We walked it to her room, to our room. We gave it to her. She blew out the candle. We sang. We left, and everything was awesome, and I was feeling great until we got back into the kitchen, and Harper looks at me and immediately goes, I want cake, too! Instant toddler meltdown. So I thought, okay, how are we going to handle this? And so I started talking to her. I said, okay, win the battle. Don't lose the war. Let's talk this through and all of that. Now, you would think in my kindness, I should respond with nothing but mercy and grace. Hey, baby girl, I know you're too. And emotions are hard. And I know that you're seeking emotional health and you want to feel the right emotion at the right time. And so let's chat and let's talk about it and let's work through this. Bring your emotions up to the Lord and out to me. Like, let's just figure out what to do this together. That's how I maybe should have responded with less sarcasm. But instead, I responded at least internally with, oh, baby girl, mm-mm. Uh-uh, I made you fresh handcrafted waffles this morning. And I gave you peanut butter, which is your favorite. I even gave you a little piece of frosting because I knew you might be upset about the cake thing. And so I gave you some of that already because I'm kind and gracious to you. And let's not talk about the fact that it's 7 a.m. on my day off, and I go to work for 40 to 50 hours a week to pay for said cake and said waffles and said air conditioning that keeps our home nice in a cool, balmy 72 degrees, and the mortgage that I pay because of my job that keeps a roof over your head and the crib you slept in, that wonderful crib and your wonderful frozen sheets. I bought those for you as well. So do you love me now? That is how I responded, at least internally. And here's the deal, we worked it out and we talked it through and finally I got her to calm down and we went on with the rest of our day and I think my wife had a great birthday. But here's why I tell you that story. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Number one, for your pity, so thank you. <laughs> and number two, I tell you that story because what happened to me a few weeks ago on a Friday morning with a toddler meltdown is a little bit of what we're about to experience in Jonah chapter four. Jonah is about to have a full-on meltdown. And God, because he is much, much better and more merciful and gracious than me, is going to respond again for a fourth time with love and compassion and grace and kindness to Jonah. Because Jonah's going to go, Lord, I loved your mercy when you showed it to me. But now that God's mercy is extending to someone else and his grace and kindness is going to someone else, suddenly Jonah throws a fit and wants to die. 
That's Jonah chapter 4. Let's get into it together. Jonah chapter 4, by way of recap, over the first few chapters and the rest of the story, Jonah has been called by God to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel. He's like, nope, I'm going to Tarshish. He tries to go to Tarshish. God sends a storm and some sailors and a ship. Eventually, Jonah ends up in the ocean and then in the belly of a fish. He kind of like half repents-ish in chapter 2. The whale or fish spits him back onto dry land. He finally goes to Nineveh. He has that great eight-word sermon, right? Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The whole city repents, including the cattle. Lots of people have been asking me about the cattle. I have no idea what's going on with the cattle repenting. I just know they do, kind of, maybe. Uh, they have sackcloth on. And then you get to Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. And this is where we left off last week. When God saw what they did, that being the repentance of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. How wonderful, right? This entire city, enemies of God, wicked and evil. They finally turn from their way. They repent. And you would expect the prophet of God to go, yes, this is awesome. An entire city repented. And I didn't have to do that much work, just eight words. And they all repented. This is great. You would expect rejoicing and gratitude and a little bit of repentance and joy. That's not how Jonah responds. Look at how Jonah responds. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But... It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So he's giving us his reasoning. This is why I went the other way. When you called me to Nineveh, this is why I fled from your presence. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah goes back to his old ways of chapter 2 where he's quoting scripture, albeit horribly again, and he is referencing in particular a passage from Exodus 34. That's where God is describing his very heart, his very nature to the people of Israel. He's led them out of slavery in Egypt. He's given them the law. This is how you should live as my people in the land I'm about to take you into. And God's revealing his heart in this way, Exodus 34, 6. God says about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So notice what Jonah does in chapter 4, verse 2. He takes the very nature and description that God gives for himself, but he doesn't receive it as wonderful. Instead, he turns it back around, he points a finger at God and says, I knew you were like that. I knew you were that mercy guy. I knew you were full of grace and full of compassion. And this is where we get to the heart of the matter. You see, here's the reality. Jonah didn't run because he was nervous that his trip to Nineveh would be unsuccessful. He ran from God because he was worried it would be successful. Jonah ran from God not because he thought something bad might happen to him. He runs from God because he thought something good might happen to Nineveh. Remember chapter 1, Nineveh is his enemy. He hates Nineveh. Nineveh is a thorn in the side to the people of Israel. And Jonah knows deep down in his heart that the gracious and merciful God would find a way to show grace to a group of people that Jonah did not want him to show grace to. To Jonah, this relenting, this absolution of sin, this forgiveness from God is not only not a good idea, it's actually wrong. So verse 1, which is translated uh, in the ESV as displeased Jonah exceedingly, can actually be translated as it was exceedingly evil 
to Jonah. So according to Jonah's worldview and standards of right and wrong, it's actually evil and wicked that God would relent the Ninevites, that he would not punish them, that he would not give them what Jonah feels like they deserved. It's evil and wicked. And so he's angry, apparently angry enough to die. Look at how God responds, verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Is it right, Jonah? Is it right for you to be angry about this? Like, is it okay? Is this the right emotion? Obviously, the answer is no, it's not. First, because God is God. He can have mercy on who he wants to have mercy. But secondly, God has been consistently merciful to Jonah in a multitude of ways in the first three chapters of this story. Verse 5, here's how the story continues. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah preaches the sermon, the whole city repents from the least to the greatest. He goes outside and he kind of has this thing where he's just going to wait. So he sets up a booth, which is like an old uh, New Test- Old Testament kind of tent structure, a shelter for himself. And basically he's like, I'm just going to sit here and wait and see what happens. Now we don't know what's going on in his heart. It could be that he maybe is like wondering, is this false repentance? Is it not actually going to take root? Is God going to like change his mind and actually punish them? What's going to happen? He just kind of decides, I'm going to go up, make myself a little shelter and just watch and see if the city is going to be destroyed. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So here's Jonah. He says, God, it's exceedingly wicked and evil that you would forgive these people. And God's like, I'm going to be gracious to you again. And he gives him a plant, and this plant is shade from the hot sun. And so even though Jonah is sitting outside the city, and he's angry, and he's bitter, and he's just kind of throwing a pity party tantrum, God goes, Jonah, here's a plant, and I love you, and I'm merciful to you again, and I'm gracious to you again. And the text says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, and it's an intentional parallel from the author. So he's notice he's exceedingly angry that God was merciful to the Ninevites, but he's exceedingly glad that God is merciful to him. It's a parallel. Notice what's going on in Jonah's heart. We'll circle back to that in a second. Verse 7. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked again that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So here's Jonah in the course of two days, a couple verses, and again, he's like, I want to die. This is not okay. This is wrong. He's in despair. God has sent the plant and then taken the plant. He's sent a bitter wind and scorching heat, another really severe mercy, like we talked about in week one, to get Jonah's attention, and it goes away. He makes it rot. He sends um, this worm to attack it, and Jonah's in despair again. And it's hard as you're reading this to miss the pride and selfishness that Jonah is showing in his relationship to God. So here's what's happening. Jonah wants the providence and goodness and might of God as long as it's turned in one direction, namely towards him. So see this, right? Watch what's going on. He's exceedingly angry. It's wicked and evil that God would be merciful to the Ninevites. It's great that God would be merciful to me. Now it's evil that God is not merciful to me. You see the the transaction here. He wants God to be good and kind and merciful as long as it's directed in Jonah's direction. And so in other words, a few things. One, he wants a God who rules over all and does whatever he pleases as long as what God pleases benefits Jonah. Jonah wants a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love as long as that mercy, grace, and steadfast love is directed towards Jonah. 
Jonah wants a God that gives people what they deserve for their wickedness to be just and righteous in wrath as long as those people aren't Jonah. I wonder, do you see any of your heart in Jonah? Our hearts that say, God, I really want you to be this particular part of your characteristics and attributes as long as those are directed towards me. Be merciful and gracious to me. Judge those who are not me. That's the heart of Jonah. He wants God to be what he wants God to be. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you, be, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? There goes God, caring about the cattle again. I don't understand. I'm sorry. It's fascinating. This is really one of the only times you see God speaking here in this passage besides the calls to Jonah. He calls him to, to obedience twice and then here at the end of the book. And he asks Jonah this, this normal question. He says, you, you pity the plant. You pity the plant. You didn't labor for the plant. You didn't plant the plant. You didn't water the plant. You didn't care for the plant. And yet you're angry that the plant has gone away. And yet God says, should I not be loving and merciful and gracious to a city? You're this mad that you want to die that a plant was destroyed, and yet you're upset that I'm sparing a city of 120,000 people that bear my image, that have my imprint, that share my nature, that I've cared for and provided for and taken care of. Do you have no compassion, Jonah? You're angry because I destroyed a plant, and yet you're, not, you're angry because I won't destroy a city. And ironically and awkwardly and weirdly, that's where the story ends. <laughs> All of this suspense, all of this drama carrying us through the last four chapters, and it ends with this question from God. Jonah, is this right? Should I not pity this city? The story ends with Jonah, alone under the scorching sun, angry at God for God's mercy to Jonah's enemies. And there's no conclusion, there's no resolution, it's left with this open-ended question. And, and I would argue the reason why that is, and this is what many scholars and theologians argue as well, is that the, the ending of Jonah is left unresolved on purpose, because the story of Jonah is meant to be like an arrow. And it's meant to be pulled back a little bit at a time. And as you're reading through this story, chapter after chapter, it's meant to be pulled back. Is Jonah going to understand God's mercy? Is Jonah going to understand God's mercy? Is Jonah going to understand God's mercy? Is he finally going to understand God's mercy? And the arrow shoots, and the story leaves unresolved with this question because the arrow is meant to shoot past Jonah and to hit us. Do we understand God's mercy? Do we grasp the grace of God? Do we get his kindness to us? Do we grasp and dwell in his steadfast love? I love the way Pastor Sinclair Ferguson puts it when he says this. He says, Jonah is a true story, but it is also a parable. It is shaped in the same way that our Lord's parables are, not only as a fascinating piece of history, but to force us to contemplate our personal destiny. It carries no conclusion because it summons us to write the final paragraph. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide our own conclusion to its message. You are Jonah. I am Jonah. We recognize ourselves in the story of this man's life. We stand together in need of the mercy of God to enable us from this day on to be obedient to his commands and to live to the praise of his glorious grace. Church, the story of Jonah makes us wrestle with the reality of our own hearts. 
do we grasp the mercy of God? Do we dwell in God's grace? Do we swim and live in the kindness of God's steadfast love for us? Do we love it and do we long for it and do we rejoice in it, both for ourselves and for others? And that's the question Jonah 4 makes us wrestle with. It's a question I want to spend just a few more minutes talking about tonight in light of Jonah chapter 4. So last week, In light of Jonah 3, we asked this question. We said, do you believe the mercy of God is great enough to save sinners? Like, do you believe those people that you've written off as not um, good enough or, you know, there's no way they're going to ever believe? Do you believe God's grace would actually reach to them like it reached to you when you were dead in your sins and when you were his enemy? Do you believe God's mercy is great enough to save sinners? This week, I want to ask a slightly different question, and that is this. Do you want the mercy of God to be great enough to save sinners. So last week we asked, do you believe it is? This week we have to wrestle with, do you want it to be? First, do we think God can save sinners? And then do you want him to? How will you respond when God shows grace to people you don't want him to show grace towards? When he forgives people that you would rather him not forgive? Or to use the language of chapter one, how will you respond when God pursues others like he pursued you? See, the problem with Jonah is that Jonah wants to be the grace keeper, grace gatekeeper for God. Jonah wants to be the one deciding who gets grace and who doesn't. He wants to sit there and say, okay, God, this person, grace, me, grace, these folks, no grace. They get what's what's coming to them. Jonah wants to be the one who determines who God judges and who God forgives. And we said in week one that Jonah is a microcosm of the hearts of God's people, the Israelites, at this time. Jonah is just a glimpse of what's happening in this larger Old Testament people of God. Because from Genesis 12 onward, here's what happens. God calls this man named Abram. Later, his name changes to Abraham. And God gives him this call in Genesis 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply your offspring so that you will be a blessing to the world. So that my love for you will spread into love for the nations. But it's something the Israelites never quite get. You see them wrestling through this from Genesis to Malachi as they constantly ask this question, is it really for other people? Is God's grace and mercy and love really for other people who are not like us? And they wrestle with this all the way even into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Does the grace of God extend to our enemies and to the outsider? And it's ingrained in their hearts that just because they were Jewish, that they were deserving of special favor and blessing and mercy of God. And this is why years and years later, after Jesus dies and rises again, the Holy Spirit comes, the church is born, that Jewish Christians, even leaders in the church like Peter, have such a hard time with the fact that the gospel is available to all who would believe. It's not based on works, it's not based on rules, it's not based on what they would do or where they're from or their family of origin or their nationality or anything like that. And so they keep asking the question all throughout the early church, even the Gentile God, even the Roman, even the Galatian, even the Philippian, even those who are not like us, even our enemies, why would you have mercy for our enemies? Why would you have grace for these people that are not like us? It's a question burning for centuries in the hearts of the Israelites. And if we're willing to be honest, I think it's a question in the dark parts of our hearts as well. God, really? You would be gracious to that person? You would have mercy 
for that person? Why would you invite that person or those people to be a part of the family of God? So it's worth wrestling with this question. Do we want the mercy of God to be great enough to save sinners? Or to put it another way, who have we become the grace gatekeeper for? Who have we decided? These people, yeah, God, you can be merciful to them, but these folks, mm mm-mm. Maybe for you it's that friend, the one that hurt you a few months ago or a few years ago who you feel like used you and then abandoned you, turned their back on you, betrayed you, never apologized, never cared, never called and said, hey, that's my bad, I'm sorry. Kind of just went on with their life, like, no big deal. Do you want the grace of God to save that person? Or maybe that family member? That family member who, man, even thinking about them or hearing their name just kind of sends shivers down your spine. And you suffered years of pain and hurt and abuse with their hands. Do you want the grace of God to be great enough to save that person? Or the coworker? Or the boss who you feel like slandered you or dragged your name through the mud is the whole reason why you're not in your dream career right now, the whole reason why you didn't get that promotion, the whole reason why you can't pay your bills, the whole reason why you're stuck in the job that you have with the coworkers that you have. Do you want the grace of God to be enough for that person? Or maybe it's not a specific person, maybe it's a whole group of people because of the own prejudice in your heart because of their nationality or their background or their skin color or their economic status or their history or whatever it may be that you're like, really, God, those people? Do you want the grace of God to be big enough to save those people? Take a minute and think about it. Who is, who is that person where if you found out tomorrow, you got a call, and somebody said, hey, man, or woman, well, uh, I just want to let you know, so-and-so met Jesus. Went to church, heard the gospel, gave their life to Christ, repented of their sin. Now everything about that person that's true about you, you know is now true about them. That they're forgiven, they're washed clean, they're included in the family of God, they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and they have a future eternity with Jesus. Do you rejoice with the angels? Or do you say, God, that's not fair, because now they're not going to get what they deserve. Who's that person? Who are those people? Because here's what Jonah makes you wrestle with. One, the question is, do we want the grace of God to be great enough to save sinners? But then two, do we actually believe our desperate need for the grace of God? Because here's the story of the scriptures, here's the story of Jonah, here's the story of our lives, is that not getting what we deserved is the very reality and beauty of Jesus, is it not? That's what Jesus is about, that none of us get what we deserve. That's the good news of the gospel, right? That all of us who trust in Jesus have not and will not get what should be coming to us. Because Jesus takes our place. And Jesus dies the death that we deserved, punished by God, so that we're welcomed. Because Christ, because of Christ, our future is not despair and destruction, but it's hope and blessing and reward in eternity with him. 
And so here's what the scriptures make us wrestle with and what continues to come back to the heart of Jonah that shows that he has not grasped the mercy of God is that the only way we can learn to want God's grace for our enemies is to more and more grasp the reality of God's grace to us. The path towards loving our enemies, which means wanting God's best for them and being willing to be a part of that only comes when we realize Christ loved us when we were his enemies. You can't love your enemy until you realize I was Christ's. And he died for me and sacrificed for me and loved me. And I love the way that Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 6. It's his, his teaching on enemy love, that passage that nobody really knows what to do with because Jesus is like, hey, if somebody hits you in the cheek, just give them the other one. And if they take your jacket, like give them your shirt too. It's like we don't know what to do with that kind of countercultural, incredible, shocking enemy love. And I love that passage because this is how Jesus ends that call to love our enemies. Luke 6, 35. He says this, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. So he says, that's the challenge. That's the call. Love your enemies. Love those who hate you, abuse you, persecute you, speak ill of you, hurt, make all kinds of suffering a reality in your life and you will be sons of the most high. But notice what he grounds it in. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So be merciful, even as your father is merciful. That's the only way that we learn to love our enemies by realizing, no, God first is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God first is merciful to those who do not deserve mercy, that he is merciful to me and to all of us when we did not and do not deserve it. And that's the point God is trying to get across to Jonah and to us in chapter four. He says, I've done everything for you. He's done everything for Jonah. Chapter after chapter after chapter, you can't read the, bo the book and the story without seeing mercy of God, mercy of God, mercy of God, mercy of God. And he says, Jonah, I've done everything for you when you did not deserve it. And now you're mad that I'm showing the same mercy I showed to you to your enemies. It's the same question he asks us. I've done everything for you. Listen, everything you have is a grace gift from God. And God would ask you the same thing. I've been so merciful to you. Are you really going to be angry that I'm merciful to your enemy? Or is the one you'd rather me not be merciful to? So here's the question. Do you want the mercy of God to be great enough to save sinners? Do you want God to pursue your enemy like he's pursued you? Do you want his mercy for them like you've received every day of your life? Do you want God to look at that person you hate and declare over them because of Jesus, righteous, not guilty, forgiven, or really, the question that has been wrecking me all week is this, is the cross enough for your enemy's sins too? Is the cross enough for your enemy's sins too? Do you want the mercy of God to be great enough to save sinners, to help us sit in the gospel, God's mercy for us, and really to be able to say yes to that question? I just want to close what we've been doing with what we've been doing every week. So turn over with me to Matthew chapter 12. I just, I just want to land with Jesus. That's where you have to land with Jonah because Jesus himself talks about it. Matthew chapter 12. I just want us to sit in the mercy of God put on display through Jesus. Matthew chapter 12. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders, and, and this is, I'll let him, let him speak for himself because he's Jesus. Matthew 12, he says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given 
to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's speaking about his coming death, where he's going to spend three days in the grave before he rises again to defeat Satan, sin, and death. He says, I'm going to spend three days in the heart of the earth. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So notice what Jesus is doing. 750 years after Jonah goes to Nineveh, he's talking to a group of scribes and Pharisees who are the religious elite, teachers of the law, religious authority, who time and time again in the scriptures and in history are barring people from the love of God. They think they're worthy because of their religious knowledge or because of the laws they say they follow, even though most of the time they don't. And so they create all of these stumbling blocks, barring people from receiving the grace of God, saying you have to do this rule and that rule and that rule and that rule. And they come to Jesus saying, Jesus, give us a sign. Prove that you are the Messiah like you say you are. And Jesus says, you get no sign. You got one sign, and his name is Jonah. For the Ninevites, that wicked city of 120,000 people repented at an eight-word sermon that Jonah preached, and yet here am I, the true and better Jonah, declaring the kingdom of God to you, and you still won't be changed by my mercy and my grace. So he says, Pharisees, he says to them, and he says to us, let us not miss the warning signs of Jonah, the signs to us of the grace and mercy of God. Let us not miss Jesus, because here's what Jesus is. Jesus, as he says himself in verse 41, is the true and greater Jonah. He's the true and greater Jonah. And this is where I just want to end for us, showing you how Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. So just like Jonah, Jesus was sent by God to preach to wicked, corrupt, and sinful people. But when Jonah ran, Jesus obeyed. Just like Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, condemned for his sins, Jesus spent three days in the grave, condemned for ours. Jonah preached a message of repentance without hope. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown, but Jesus preached judgment with hope because he himself is the hope of the world. Jonah considered it evil when Nineveh repented. Jesus rejoiced and still rejoices at each and every lost sheep who returned to the fold. Jonah wished for death when he saw his enemies receive God's mercy. Jesus willingly chose death so his enemies could receive God's mercy. Jonah went outside the city, sat on the hill to the east, waiting for Nineveh's condemnation. Jesus went outside the city to a hill called Golgotha, to a cross, to accomplish our salvation. This is the words of Adam Kerrigan, and this is where I'll leave us, and we'll leave the book of Jonah. He says this, he says, only when we read the rest of the story in the New Testament do we see what Jonah was pointing us to all along, a greater prophet, a greater preacher, a greater savior, one who had not only had the power to forgive sins, but the desire to save any who would come to him in belief and repentance. And here's what we have to catch. If you're like, what is Jonah about? This is what Jonah is about. The heart of God seen in the story of Jonah is the heart of Jesus. The heart of God seen in the story of Jonah is the heart of Jesus. Church, if you could walk away with one thing over the past four weeks, it would be this. God is way more merciful to you and gracious to you than you will ever grasp here on earth. He's so gracious to you. And when you have times over the journey of your life 
or you don't believe it, or you don't care. Because God knows we oscillate between the two, do we not? Would you go back to the story of Jonah? And would you see in God and his character in Jonah, the very heart of our Savior, mercy and grace and steadfast love? Because although Jonah uses it as an accusation against God, it doesn't mean it's not true. That God would say about himself to us, the Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and full of steadfast love. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that in the story of Jonah, we see the heart of Jesus. We see the heart of you. We see the heart of your spirit. God, thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. Lord, thank you that although we don't deserve it, that we rebel and we run just like Jonah, that we want to run from your presence and hide from your commands and disobey all of the time, Lord, that you are so merciful and gracious to us. And as I, I've got to pray, as we think about this question, and we wrestle with the dark places of our hearts, and we ask ourselves in honesty and vulnerability, as you invite us to do, and we would sit with this question, do we want you to be great enough to save sinners? Well, and I pray that we would have confidence and courage by the power of the gospel to confess where we don't, God, to bring to you the enemies that we've decided should be barred from your grace. God, by the power of your spirit, you would break down all of the caveats we want to give, all of the justifications we want to lobby out, why we, why we are the exemption to loving our enemy, or that person is the exemption to us loving them as our enemy. And yet your mercy breaks our hearts. And your grace captivates us, changes us. And as we dwell in the reality of your spirit, and what you've done for us when we were your enemies, when we hated you, when we wanted nothing to do with you, when we went against you and rebelled against you and laughed and mocked you, that your love for your enemies, namely us, took you to a cross that you died so that we would not get what we deserve. That through faith in you, we would be forgiven, washed clean, and made new. Lord, we love you. Help us to believe your mercy. Probably since in Christ's name, amen. Lord.